there is an old Spanish castle that defends the entrance to the bay at San Juan, Puerto Rico. It has six levels uh, facing the Atlantic Ocean where cannons were placed, uh, where they could actually bombard ships trying to take over the old city. The construction of this fort began in the mid-16th century. Think about how old that is. It didn't actually finish for about 200 years. About 1790, it was completed. And in, in its heyday, the fort made the city seemingly impregnable. In fact, it was about a century later during the Spanish-American War that technology had really overcome such fortifications and our new ships were able to send bombardments into the old city that the fort really couldn't defend any longer. And because of that, it became outdated. Now it's part of the National Park Service. You can go and walk around the old fort and see where the soldiers lived and where the cannons sat once sat and even where the latrines are. Uh, my wife told me the ladies' latrine actually has a beautiful view of the Atlantic Ocean. I can't, you, you got to have stuff like that in old forts, I guess. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But God is your fortress. He's a fort. He actually is your defense. In the psalm, the one that we read today, the psalmist says, Be my strong rock, a house of defense to save me, because you are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. Psalm 71, be my strong habitation, whereunto I continually resort. You have given commandment to save me because you are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 91, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Psalm 144, my goodness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, in whom I trust. David the great shepherd, warrior king, knew the importance of fortresses. And he saw in God the very thing that we have in him. We who know him as Savior, we have this in him too. He is our defender. He is our fortress. And that doesn't mean that we'll never come under attack. God defending us doesn't mean we'll never face attacks. Sure we do. Satan attacks Christians from all sides because he desires to destroy us. He attacks us internally, trying to gin up fear and doubt, to sow seeds of conflict, to, to create strife among God's people. He attacks from without, pummeling us like a tank blast, shelling a building. And left alone, let me tell you, you don't stand a chance. Left alone, there's no hope for our fight against temptation. Left alone, there's no hope for the development of our Christian character. Left alone, we can't expect to have a stable testimony for Christ. 
If it's just we ourselves defending us against Satan attacks, friends, then our marriages are in trouble. Then our families have no hope. If our church is all there is against Satan, then we can expect to have no impact for Christ in our community. If he's not on our side, then missions will fail and church plants will fail. Imagine what it must be like to enter into some of life's most difficult situations without God on your side. Being alone in a room, in a retirement home. Waiting hours upon end for death to come. Imagine doing that without Christ. Imagine being without Christ on an operating table not knowing the outcome of the upcoming surgery or getting news of an unexpected death of a family member or a friend. Imagine doing that without Christ. What would it be like even just to get through the day without the Lord when friends turn on you or you face serious conflicts at work? Or body parts that used to feel fine, don't anymore. Or when financial pressures mount. I'm even thinking about young people. Imagine taking that exam without the Lord with you. Or navigating friendships that, let me just tell you, are a lot worse at your age. When you get older, you can just look at a person like some of the people you know in school and just go, I don't have any friends with you if you're going to be like that. You don't really get that luxury when you're younger. Imagine feeling like a social outcast without Jesus. Having a school bully or even just experiencing the changes that go on in your body. Doing all these things without the Lord. Imagine doing all of that alone. It's during these times. It's during these times. That we must remind ourselves that God is our rock, our defense, our high tower, our fortress. And what we find in Acts 9 is God defending his people against satanic attack. Friends, when the warships of the enemy line up in the harbor of your life, ready to launch their salvos at the very doorstep of your heart, it is then that you must remind yourself, God is on your side. He is your fortress. So consider with me number one. God is on your side when trouble threatens to destroy. Fear is created by verbal threats. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul breathing out threatenings, breathing out slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Now, Luke identifies these Christians here in this passage in two different ways. He calls them disciples in verse 1. Think about this for a moment. He's really saying that all believers are disciples. If you're a believer, you're a disciple. If you're a disciple, you're a believer. Which is why I often ask people not, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because here in the American South, about half of the population has at one point accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What I ask is, are you actively a follower of Jesus? 
Are you today following Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple? Because that's the way the Bible describes believers. He also says in verse 2 that they are followers of this way. Followers of the way. That was really the first designation. They were called followers of the way. And the way is the idea of someone who walks in the way of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the idea here is that being with Jesus is to be in the way of God, to walk in the ways of God. Now, Saul's intent was to harm these people. If we can draw a circle around that group, people who are disciples, followers of the way, if you can draw a circle around them, that's the target Saul had for himself. He wants to harm those people. And he's already, if you go back to chapter 8 and verse 3, he's already made havoc of the church in Jerusalem. He started in Jerusalem, and now he's headed out to Damascus, about 150 miles away. Can you stop for a moment and realize Saul is actually doing missionary work for Satan? He has a great commission from his master, right? Isn't this what, what the great commission was? You'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, Saul was a, a missionary for Satan in Jerusalem, and now he's going to strike out into Damascus. He, he's working his way out, trying to find believers, bring them back to Jerusalem in order to put them in prison, or even worse, to murder them. That's the word slaughter means. He wants to murder them. And he's actually verbally threatening harm. Ananias says, I have heard of this man. I've heard stories about him, Saul. I, he didn't have to see him. He knew who Jesus was talking about to him. He heard about this man, what he was intending to do. And so there's verbal threat, which naturally creates fear in the heart. Not only fear, but danger is created by actual threats. Look again at verse 1. Saul went to the high priest and desired of him letters to the synagogues to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul goes to Caiaphas. Think about this. Who's the high priest now? Probably Caiaphas, in all likelihood. Here's the guy who actually sentenced Jesus to death. He, he says, I'm going to go find the followers of Jesus, and we're going to put them to death too, just like we've been doing here in Jerusalem. He wants letters to go to the Jewish synagogues in Damascus. 150 miles away, with no controlling legal authority at all from the Roman government. He wants to go out and bring these Christians in these synagogues where they have gathered to serve and worship God and bring them back to Jerusalem. He literally wants to, to use Shakespeare's word, kidnap them. And drag them back. Again, in order to murder them. Can you just stop for a moment and realize this? Fear and danger. This is what these people were facing. And it has an impact, doesn't it? I mean, how do you respond to fear and danger? It cause you to do things you never thought you'd do. I, I've seen people freeze dead in their tracks because of fear and danger. You, you should be running, but they're just stuck. They just seize up. Fear and danger reveals what's really in one's heart. You get into the, that doctor's office 
And that poor doctor is trying his best to help you. And you're in fear. And you're in danger because of some illness. And now you take out all your frustrations on that doctor. Because of you're afraid. And it reveals what's in your heart. It, these things bring on emotions that are really powerful. And do you know fear and danger can cause you to harm your testimony? Afraid Christians are more likely to, f- to fail in their obedience to God? When you're really afraid or you're really in danger or your children's lives are in danger? I've seen this kind of thing happen. People get so concerned about their children or themselves or their spouse that they begin actually going against the teachings of Scripture. They often make rash decisions. And you know what? It even changes some of their doctrinal positions. (laughs) I used to believe that, but now I don't anymore because of fear and danger. It can prevent you from even speaking up when you should. When you ought to tell people about Christ, when you ought to share your faith, all of a sudden fear and danger encourages you to keep your mouth shut. So how great is it then? Think about this. How wonderful is it that God is on your side? Because this is point number two. God's power easily thwarts Satan's attacks. You see, God stops the enemy in his tracks. Look again at verse three. Here's Saul. He's journeying to Damascus. He's almost there. And suddenly, a light shines around him from heaven. Jesus reveals himself. It causes Saul to fall on his face on the ground. And then Jesus begins speaking to him. You see, here's how God stops the enemy in his tracks here in this text. He does so by revealing himself to Saul. Outside the city, Jesus appears both visually to Saul and verbally to Saul. He can see the light. He can hear the voice, and the revelation is Jesus speaking of himself. Let's just kind of walk through the conversation, right? Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? What did I ever do to you? Why are you so angry against me? And Saul says, well, who are you? Who are you? That is the existential question, isn't it? Who are you? Who is the Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. I'm the one who created the way. I'm the one who gathered these disciples. I am Jesus. You are persecuting me. You are even hurting yourself. It is hard for you to kick against the ox goads, those sharp sticks that they got the ox to move. You're struggling to kick against those things. You're jabbing at your own heart. And can I tell you something? This turns him in an instant. In a moment. What do you want me to do? What an incredible response. Who are you? Oh, okay. I understand. What would you like me to do? That's salvation. What do you want me to do? This is the definition of discipleship. What do you want me to do? Jesus is my master. We ask, Master, what do you want with my life? What would you like me to do? And then we do what the Lord wants. 
And what's missing from Saul's conversion? You know, this is the, one of the strangest conversion testimonies. So the Apostle Paul later, give, he gives this three times. Luke records it three times in the gospel of in the book of Acts. Three times. I imagine the Apostle Paul gave this testimony nearly everywhere he went. Probably every church he founded, he told the story about being on the road to Damascus to take people prisoner back to Jerusalem, but God stopped him in his tracks. And here he is. It, it's such a strange story. It's very different from modern conversion stories. You know, there's nobody has the wordless book. My heart was black with sin. You know, that didn't happen here. Until the Savior came in. You guys don't know this? His precious blood, I know. Okay, so we're going to have to learn the Wordless Book song at some point. Some of you didn't learn this growing up. You know, he didn't go to junior church. But there's still repentance and faith. He had an old way, turned completely around, had a new way. Had an old master, turned completely around, had a new master. That's repentance. And he had faith. He said, okay, Lord, you're my Lord. What do you want me to do? That's faith. That's still going on here. Even if there's no prayer, it isn't the prayer that saves anyway. So God stops the enemy in his tracks. And then he, at the same time, he is bringing in other servants to help. This is letter B. He brings in other servants. You see that it's in verse 10. In the meantime, there's another disciple at Damascus. I'm sure there were many disciples in Damascus, but this poor guy, got the, he drew the short straw, right? At least it seems that way at the beginning because he's named Ananias, and Ananias is told in a vision. And notice what he says. Okay, Lord, I'm here. Here we have, coinciding with Saul's conversion, Ananias' preparation. He's already a believer. So instead of saying, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? He just says, I'm here, Lord. That's what a disciple says when Jesus speaks to him. Okay, I'm here. And Jesus tells him what to do. He informs Ananias of Saul's location. He's at Judas's house. Go over there. It's on Straight Street. Go over there and find Saul. And help him get his sight back. So he'll be able to see you, Ananias. Ananias goes, I don't want that to happen. This is a bad assignment. You know, you, you think of the old guy named, old guy named Obadiah. And with Elijah. Go tell, Elijah says to Obadiah, not the guy who wrote the book of Obadiah, different Obadiah. Go, go tell Ahab. Give him a message for me. Obadiah says, what did I ever do to you? Why would you give me such a terrible job? I've been hiding these prophets of the Lord, a hundred of them, feeding them out of my own pocket. You're going to tell me to go to Ahab? He's going to kill me. That's what Ananias is thinking. I, I have a, this is a terrible assignment. He has this concern. This man is an enemy of his faith, verses 13 and 14. He's hauling people back to Jerusalem, but the Lord indicates, no, no, he's mine. Here's what I'm going to do with him. He's going to be a testimony before Gentiles and kings and even the children of Israel, which I love he threw that in at the end. That, that may be Luke's, a little bit of Luke's uh, added benefit for our, our, our help. But Saul's conversion is just part of God's larger evangelistic plan because Saul, he says, is my chosen vessel. He will carry, he will bear, as Paul, Saul, Paul, later says, we are a choke, we are vessels and have this treasure inside. 
in 2 Corinthians 4. This beautiful light, this treasure, he will bear my name and he will suffer for Jesus. That's God's plan. And so let her see he turns an enemy into a friend. Ananias goes his way, enters into the house, and notice how he addresses him. He kissed brother Saul. Don't you love that? We are now brothers. You were my enemy, but now you're my friend. And Ananias heals Saul from his blindness. He arrives in the house where Saul is staying and connects Saul's situation with his own. Jesus appeared to you and you became blind. Jesus appeared to me and I will heal you of your blindness. Do you see that? It's just beautiful how it's working out. And he baptizes Saul, a new disciple of Jesus the Lord. And Saul's blindness is healed and more importantly, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And my friends, this, this is what's happening. You can get into a situation where your fortress is under attack. But in the middle of that, you have to recognize God actually sees that from above and he has a plan for your life. He has a will for you, a plan for you. And it begins with salvation. It begins with you accepting Jesus as your Savior. If that hasn't occurred, if you haven't had the conversion experience on the Damascus Road, if, if you aren't calling Jesus your Lord and your Master, if your trust is not in Him, then, then my friends, you're, you're not there yet. It begins, God's will for your life begins in your salvation. It, it continues with your sanctification, with your growing in your walk with Him, in your a life of prayer, a life of Bible study, a life of testimony. This is what God has for you. It's not your career. It's not your profession. It's not your abilities. It's not your hobbies. It's not your family. It's not even your family. And God has a will for all those things. But ultimately, His will is to change you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's doing in your life. And if you understand that, then His will for you is revelation to you. That is, it's showing you what you must do. It's found right in His Word. I, I, I uh, saw a meme the other day. You've probably seen this. You were on social media. It was a, a guy saying, I just would love to hear Jesus talk to me. Somebody said, answer, read your Bible. He said, no, no, no. I want to hear him talk out loud to me. He said, well, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> oh, that was pretty funny. That's pretty good. God's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. So his will is in his revelation. And in the middle of all that, what a blessing that he puts other servants in your path to help you down your path. Saul is at his most vulnerable state. And here he puts a man like Ananias, a man whose first response is, Lord, what will you have me to do? I'm here. Tell me what to do. He puts that man in Saul's path. We often think of Barnabas and how he was instrumental in bringing Saul along. We think of those type of people in preparing Saul later to become the apostle Paul. But his first point of contact, his first discipler is Ananias. 
the man who had the target on his back, disciples the man who was his enemy because he becomes a Christian. And then what a blessing that we have the Holy Spirit. In the middle of all this, it's overlooked. In the text, it's easily overlooked. You're just reading along. Well, of course he gets the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells those who believe in Christ. But my friends, you have the Holy Spirit. In this sense, you're never alone. I am with you always, Jesus said, to the ends of the earth. You, you think about people who feel alone. People in prison might feel alone. People who've been captured or kidnapped might feel alone. But friends, you're not alone. God's with you. Wherever you are on the face of this earth, God's with you. David said, if I go down into the depths of the sea, God's with me. If I ascend the heights of the heaven, God's with me. He's with me all the time. I can't flee from your spirit. I can't run from your presence. One of the greatest blessings I've ever known is the realization after my children were born is that even if they were away from me, God was still with them. Because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Even when they're doing stupid things. And that happens once in a while, right? We all do stupid things from time to time. And God is still with us. Now think about how much has changed. The chapter begins with Saul preparing to murder Christians. 19 verses into the story, he's now a Christian that he was himself working to kill. All because of what God did in his life. And in a very real sense, this is what God is doing in all of our lives. He stops us in our tracks. He turns us to himself, bringing in others to help us spiritually. And the result is that we become followers of God. This kind of testimony is a display of God's superiority, of his power, and this now brings him glory. This is how the passage ends. This is point number three. God's display of his superiority brings him glory. God is glorified from all of that because he's glorified in the fact that the gospel is declared. When Saul, certain days with the disciples at Damascus, this is the second part of verse 19, he was there with those disciples in that city and straightway he preached Christ. In the synagogues, he has letters in his back pocket looking for Christ preachers. He has to thumb through those to find, you know, his outline for his message. Oh, no, it's, that's not it. Oh, no, that, oh, no, the letters for Christians murdered. No, that's not it. Oh, here we go. Christ from the Old Testament. He's now preaching Christ that he is the son of God, that he is the very Christ. This is really incredible. Everything has changed in Saul's life. He has a new spiritual family. He's on a new team. His new family are the other disciples in Damascus. They're on his side now. Everything's shifted around. In fact, you know, Saul is going to go for years struggling against the fact that he burned a lot of bridges in the Christian community. It's going to be some 14 years later that he's finally going to be able to do real missions work because everywhere he's going to go, Christians are going to say, I'm not sure I can trust this guy. And, and wouldn't you feel that way about him? I mean, if we had a guy working for the town of Cary 
This is, by the way, not this far-fetched. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if we had a guy working for the town, he comes in here and he grabs up Brother Matt and Tinker. Well, Tinker's from Fuqua. He wouldn't take you, but he takes Matt. My father-in-law grabs him. Maybe my mother-in-law, too. Takes both of them off, and they're in prison now. And uh, uh, he takes uh, Brother Joe here, Pastor Joe, because, you know, he's one of the pastors. He grabs him. Um, I don't know how I slipped away. Maybe he grabs me and leaves Joe. I don't know. But anyway, you know, he can you imagine? And then all of a sudden, he's on our team and he wants to preach. He wants to stand behind the pulpit and declare to you from the Bible that Jesus is the very Christ. This is what's happened. It really is amazing. And this is incredible. He gives Saul a new spiritual family, a new spiritual mission which involves Christ in the synagogue preaching so powerful that it confounds verse 22. It confounds the Jews in that synagogue. It's like talking to Jesus when he was 12. They don't know how to answer these questions. They don't know what to say because he's able to take the Old Testament and say, here's the key. Here's the missing puzzle piece. You all know it. It's right here. This is why I love witnessing Catholics, by the way. You know, they already believe in God. They already believe in creation. They already believe in the Bible. They already believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus died on a cross. I can tell you they believe that. You have a crucifix that shows they believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe he was buried. They believe he rose again from the dead. They believe all those things. They're just missing the last little piece of information. That if you put your faith only in him, he can save you from your sins. Once and always. And Paul... Saul, rather, is taking that little puzzle piece from the Old Testament, that little key that unlocks the Old Testament, and he unlocks it for all of them, and it confounds them. They don't even know how to answer. And here's the man who had marching orders from the devil himself. He's doing Satan's work. Satan is a liar and a murderer. Saul was a murderer. He's murdering these people, persecuting the church of God. He is breathing out threatenings and murder and slaughter. And he's turned completely around now. And he's preaching that Jesus is the very Son of God, that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the anointed one of God who would actually save people from their sins. This is what he's preaching now. And he becomes a missionary for Christ. And while God is being glorified in the fact that the gospel is now being preached, He's being glorified at those who are now wondering at God's works. In verse 21, all that heard him were amazed. They were amazed. And wouldn't you be amazed? How sad that we're so surprised at what God does in people's lives. God changes people. From the inside out, he changes them. He turns them on dying. He changes their lives completely. And this is what's happening. They can't believe what they're seeing. They're astounded. The audience is absolutely astounded, dumbfounded, jaw drop, can't believe it. This is an amazing thing. He that destroyed them, which called on the name in Jerusalem, is now preaching that Jesus is the very Christ. And they wonder at the truth that Saul is now doing Paul-like work. The one who was trying to destroy the church is now trying to build the church. He's now wanting to establish new churches. 
God has completely turned his life around and everybody just has to stop and be amazed at it. My friends, that is what God is doing. That's it. When, when he works, it brings glory to him. I could, I could tell you a, a thousand stories of situations that have happened in this church, both in people's lives, in the establishing of the church, where amazing things happened, you, things you wouldn't believe. The half. I, I remember I had been here about two weeks and we had one of our missionary couples, Dave and Claudia Barber, were with us. And Claudia had a best friend growing up. Now, you, some of you had best friends. I didn't have a best friend. I had a lot of friends. I didn't have one that I would call a best friend. But I had a lot of friends. So she had a best friend growing up. And, they, and she grew up, her dad was a pastor. She grew up over in Wilson, North Carolina. Before she met her husband and went to college, she was in Wilson where her dad was pastoring. And she had a best friend in Wilson, North Carolina. And her best friend lived here. And I... I'm starting a church, and her, she and her, they live in Preston. Her best friend lives in Preston. I thought this is amazing. God is really, God is going to bless us in a way. I, I mean, we, we don't know anybody living in town. Here come Dave and Claudia to help us plant the church. You know, they're going to stay six months and help us plant the church. And Claudia's best friend lives just down the street. I mean, you could write this ahead of time if you wanted to. Except, her best friend didn't want to be part of a new church. In fact, her best friend was convinced that you can work and try and do anything you can. You'll never start a church in Cary, North Carolina. And so two weeks after I moved here, I sat in her office. She was a printer. She and her husband owned a printing company. And I sat in her office and she looked at me across the table and she said, with kind of a wry smile, this is what she said. Now just think about this. Think about Satan and think about these words. Here's what she said. It'll never work. It'll never happen. I've seen people try. You'll never start a church in this town. Well, thank you for the encouragement. You're, you're, you're the lady helping us, best friend. And all you're doing is trying to tell me how I just moved my young family on almost no money and sunk our entire life savings into something that's going to fail. I want to thank you for the encouragement. Now, God didn't let that happen, did he? God, not me, God didn't let that happen. I could tell you a thousand stories like that. And, and do you know why God didn't let it happen? To glorify himself. That we can look back and see what God has done and say, it's amazing. Look what God has done. Look at the life changed. Look at the soul saved. Look at the people, missionaries supported or sent out from here. This is what God is doing. And it's amazing. And it brings him glory. Because God is now on our side. He's our fortress. He's our rock. He's our high tower. He's our defense. And so when I go out and I meet somebody who's worshiping false gods in their home. And this is where, listen, this is where our American culture is headed. In mass. Idolatry has reached our shores. All those messages on idolatry that we have kind of turned into this kind of metaphorical idolatry. You know, you're idolatrizing your car or your house. or your... No, no, real idolatry is now here. You can go across the street and if you were allowed to walk through people's homes like you do an estate sale, you would find idols everywhere. 
I've often told the story. My mother-in-law and I were at a yard sale. Do you remember this? We were at a yard sale. A lady guy had a little box. And he said, it was beautiful, ornate glass box. And I said, what's the box? And he said, oh, I used to keep my God in there. Indian man. He said, I used to keep my God in there. And he said, would you like to buy it? I had to get a bigger box. I got a bigger God. I said, no, I'm sorry, friend. My, my God won't fit in your box. He doesn't fit in houses made with hands. My mother-in-law's quickly fumbling through her purse looking for a track, you know. It's like, we have opportunity, opportunity. It's pretty awesome. It's here. This is great, though, because now we can tell all those idolaters, you know what? The real God is on our side. We're like Elijah on Carmel. You can spend all day. Where's your God? Hmm. It's been a long time, no fire from heaven. Where's your God? He's, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. That's actually what he tells them. He's covering his feet. He's actually, maybe he's using the restroom. Your God has to go to the bathroom. He's just mocking them. And he turns and says, okay, Jehovah, show the people that you are the real God. And fire, falls from heaven. And it amazes people. And they fall on their face and they say, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. When you go into somebody's house today and you evangelize today, you take the Holy Spirit with you into that home. And when people turn from their sin and idolatry to serve the true and living God, it brings worship to him. Or like theologian John Piper said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he begins, missions exist because worship doesn't. My friends, when worship is happening, it's because evangelism started first. And when you evangelize those people, I think of Pastor Joe and this new church plant for these Korean folks. As these dear Korean people are saved and their lives are changed, you will one day be able to walk, Lord willing, into a Korean church building and you'll be able to listen to them, maybe not understanding their language, as they sing praises to God and of the Lamb. And your heart will be filled with gladness and worship because of what God is doing. And it's amazing. It's so life-changing. In 1990, in the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, some thieves broke in and stole a bunch of paintings. It, was the, it is still today the largest art theft in the United States in American history. Among the paintings that they stole was Christ in the Storm. It's a painting by Rembrandt van Rijn, the great uh, Dutch painter of light, he, 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 not, not like the American painter of light, Thomas Kincaid, he was the real painter of light. Those, those guys knew how to paint. Rembrandt depicts the disciples with Jesus on the storm in the Sea of Galilee. And you can see the incredible waves crashing on the front of the boat. It's really amazing. There's, there's a whole lot going on in the painting because at the front of the boat, the waves are crashing, the boat is kind of lifted up and you see the disciples are kind of hanging on for dear life. One disciple He's gotten sick to his stomach from all the ways, even though not all of them were fishermen, you understand. Matthew was a tax collector. It, he's got himself, he's actually hanging over the side of the boat. You know what's going on there, right? He's chumming the waters for fish. <laughs> and uh, you've, got, you've got all these disciples 
and then you've got Jesus and the way the light, the light are on, the light coming from, uh, I guess, the moon in a storm. <laughs> you have to have light, right? Uh, it's on those waves. And then there's one light beam on Jesus's face and he's completely calm. Of course, he's basing the story on this Matthew and Luke's gospel. And it's probably Luke, the way the description is made. And the disciples are all there and they're all afraid. And Jesus is completely calm and still. And of course, then Jesus stills the storm. Rembrandt did something pretty remarkable in that painting. Some people think there are 14 in the, in the painting. That's, that's actually not true. I spent about an hour this week counting the number of people in that boat because there's a sermon illustration out there that says there are 14 in the boat and there are only 13 in that boat. And I have counted about 100 times. I mean, I was counting in eight and five, eight and five. What's that? That's 13. I don't get to 14. I can't get 14 because, because I've been told there's even a website where they talk about the 14 people in the boat. There are only 13 there, which makes sense because how many disciples do you have? And then there's Jesus. So that's 13, right? So the 13 in the boat. And so the amazing thing isn't that Rembrandt painted an extra person in the boat. Here's what Rembrandt actually did. On, in the middle of the boat, between the people who are really the most afraid and between Jesus, there is one of the disciples, and he's actually turned, and he's looking at the painter. And as many artists did back then, they would paint people they knew as the faces. You can look at different artists, and you could actually find family members, friends of theirs. You wouldn't know it these hundreds of years later, but at the time, they'll actually say, this was my neighbor, and this was my girlfriend or whatever, and they'll actually paint those faces in. Well, Rembrandt painted his own face. He paints himself in the boat. Now, why did he do that? Because he saw that on the storms of life, on the sea, when the waves are crashing under the boat, he's there, but who's with him? And here's what Rembrandt is saying for all of us. What an incredible lesson for us is that when you are at your most vulnerable you remember, God is your rock, your <laughs> fortress, your strength. And whether it's a financial problem or a marriage issue or a temptation that you're struggling with or a difficulty at work or difficulty at school or problems with your friends or problems in your community or you have a bad news from the doctor, whatever it is. The winds and waves still know the voice that ruled them while he dwelt below. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being on our side. Satan's attacks are real and they're painful and they can be destructive, but you are our rock and our high tower and our fortress. You're our strength. Help us to remember that, Lord, with whatever we're going through. Before I finish praying, how many of you here will say, Pastor, pray for me? I'm in a storm. It doesn't have to be a big one. It doesn't have to be the worst one you've ever faced, but you know you're in that storm right now. And you're reminded God is with you through that difficulty. I'd love to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand, Pastor, pray for me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir.
Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. I'm in life storms. Father, you, you know our hearts where we are. I pray that you would please help us to remember that you're on our side when Satan attacks. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 296 in your hymnal.